The True Worship, by J. S. Blackburn. Chapter 3. The Priesthood of Christ. Both the systems of priesthood and sacrifice which the Bible calls worship are made to depend on a high priest. The continuance among the people of the tabernacle and its worship hung on the high priest's action on the Day of Atonement. In the true worship introduced in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22 we have the boldness to enter into the holiest because we have a high priest and because of what he has done. In neither case could the worship begin or continue without the existence and work of the high priest. Christ's presence there in the heavenly sanctuary is that nail in a sure place, the anchor within the veil, on which the true worship depends. In this chapter, therefore, we enter on the privilege and joy of considering our great High Priest. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the High Priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. The same call comes also at the end of the epistle, consider him, Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3. Indeed it is in this epistle exclusively that the truth of the priesthood of Christ is expounded. In this chapter references are to Hebrews unless otherwise stated. The epistle leads on step by step until we arrive in 1022 at the call to the true worship which is the result in action of the great range of truth concerning our high priest set out in the body of the epistle. The same note is touched again in the closing words. We have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15. It is easy to see why this subject should form the substance of a letter addressed to Hebrew Christians of the earliest times. They were evidently laboring under the reproach that in becoming Christians they would lose everything. In Christianity, so their opponents said, there was no sanctuary, no altar, no sacrifice, and above all, no priest. The purpose of the epistle is to assure these Hebrew Christians that we do possess a great high priest, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14. We do possess an altar, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 10. A similar approach is brought by the modern devotees of a ritualistic worship. A visitor traveled 40 miles to see a Waldensian pastor in Italy to hear more about the religion, which the pastor preached over the radio. After some conversation, they visited his simple church together. But what is it you worship, said the visitor, looking round in surprise, no candles, no sanctuary, no altar, no Christ. Ah, I see what you worship, pointing to the large Bible, you worship the book. The pastor mildly disclaimed this suggestion, but presented him with a Bible. Some time afterwards, the pastor was leaving Italy for England, and the day before he left, the same visitor arrived again. I heard you were going to England, he said, and I thought I must come and say goodbye, and thank you for the book. For it has taught me that it is not the book you worship, but the man in the book. The particular importance of the truth of the priesthood of Christ to those who have been the devotees of a ritualistic worship is clear. But is this truth equally important for other Gentile Christians? They never had an earthly sanctuary and a God-appointed high priest and could not therefore lose these favors. If we reflect on the needs to be met by this truth, however, we shall see how much we Gentile believers need the service of our high priest.
the two great purposes of the service of Christ as high priest are to help our weaknesses, succor in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 and infirmities in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15, and to sustain our worship. So long as we continue with this need, standing related to this privilege, we shall continue to stand greatly in need of priestly service. So long as we possess a high priest, why do we need to know about it? Cooperative action in any matter is only possible if there is understanding. In face of the problem of a broken-down car, action is required, but it would be of small use to blow the horn or switch on the lights. Action, to be effective and useful, must cooperate with the true principle of action of the mechanism, and this depends on knowledge and understanding. The epistle to the Hebrews is to give us understanding as to the present service of our high priest so that by cooperative action we may enter into the fullness of the blessing and privilege available in him. Indeed, we must face the fact that understanding the priesthood of Christ belongs to Christian maturity. It is strong meat for those of full age, as well as milk for the babes in Christ. There is nothing here to divert a Christian who is a babe in Christ from making a beginning in the understanding of Christ's priesthood. But the majority of the persons reading these lines will have been on the Christian pathway for several years. And it is a serious reflection that insofar as we feel reluctance to enter and advance and grow in this truth, we come under the lament of Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 to 6 to 1. Are we dull of hearing when for the time we have been on the way we ought to be teachers? Then one of the great calls which reaches us from this epistle is, let us go on to maturity, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope to the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The predominant picture of Christ presented in Hebrews sees him seated in heaven. This thought springs first from Psalm chapter 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. It is joined with Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 to form the twin pillars on which the teaching of the epistle is built. The one attests Christ's deity and sonship, the other the place of his present priestly service. Then, by a mixture of likeness and contrast, the statement of Psalm chapter 110 verse 1 is fused and blended with the actions and positions of the high priest on the day of atonement. To produce the picture of Christ, our great high priest, probably wearing his garments of glory and beauty. Seated in the heavenly sanctuary during the great arch of time which bridges the period which separates his first coming for sacrifice from his second coming for salvation. This is the splendid view in mind when the writer calls us, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling to consider him. Since so much depends on the ritual of the great day of atonement, some careful attention must be given to this, as described in Leviticus chapter 16. Although certain important actions are repeated, we shall consider at the moment only Leviticus chapter 16 verses 11 to 14 and 20 to 22. Aaron was first to slay the sin offering, then, for the only occasion in Israel's year, to lift the veil and enter into the holiest. His first action there was to put sweet incense on coals of fire from the altar, thus filling the sanctuary with a cloud of incense, that he die not. He was then to sprinkle the blood of the sin offering on and before the mercy seat on the ark. 
thus making a propitiation before God for his own sins and later for those of the people, and indeed for the sanctuary itself. When these sacrificial actions were finished, Aaron came out, confessed the sins of the people over the head of a live goat, which then bore them away into a land of forgetfulness. The meaning of all this is not less broad, long, deep, and high, not less instinct with the love that never fails, because it is plain and clear as interpreted in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. At his first coming, the blessed Christ offered himself without spot to God. After his resurrection and at the moment of his ascension, he entered into the heavenly sanctuary in the power and blessing of the blood of his sacrifice, and he is about to appear a second time. His earthly people Israel will then look on him whom they pierced, confess their sins in the language of Isaiah chapter 53, and their transgressions will be forgiven and remembered no more. The Spirit of God in Hebrews seizes on this moment, when Christ our great High Priest is inside the sanctuary of heaven, points out the contrasts with the shadows of Leviticus chapter 16, and fixes our gaze upon him, seated because the work of sacrifice is finished once for all. Probably also they have had a right instinct who have thought and taught of him there, in another contrast with the shadows of the law, wearing his garments of glory and beauty. He sits in heaven, the great high priest, and bears the names upon his breast. It is this view of Christ, let us repeat, which the writer has in mind in concluding. Having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, as holy worshippers, and thus we consider him now. The essential and characteristic garment of the high priest when he was wearing the garments of glory and beauty, was a kind of waistcoat called the ephod. Inseparably attached to this were the shoulder stones and breastplate on which were engraved the names of the children of Israel, and also the Urim and Thummim. In the description of the garments of glory and beauty in Exodus chapter 28, the ephod occupies 25 out of 34 verses. In its construction threads of two kinds were intricately interwoven. One kind consisted of threads of metallic gold, and the other of ordinary spun threads of blue, purple, scarlet, and shining white. They did beat the gold into thin plates, and cut it into threads, to work it in the blue, and in the purple, and in the scarlet and in the byssus with cunning work, Exodus chapter 39 verse 3. In the language of the typical teaching of scripture, the ephod seemed to be saying that only when he shall come. In whom the pure gold of fullness of deity has taken in one person the lovely colors of perfect manhood, will the people of God have the real priest of God's thought. It is in fulfillment of this type that these two themes form the subjects of the opening chapters of Hebrews. Chapter 1 presents the Divine Son, and Chapter 2 him who was made in all things like the men who are his brethren, sin apart. Upon the foundation formed by these two great truths is built the structure supporting the true worship, and indeed the fabric of Christianity itself. Special attention is drawn to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, unto the Son he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This verse unquestionably teaches a sonship in deity forever and ever. It is sometimes said that the words, eternal Son, do not occur in Scripture, in order to question the truth they contain. This is mere slavery to words. A divine sonship is a sonship which belongs to Christ's deity, a sonship which belongs to deity means a sonship pre-existent before the incarnation, and is thus exactly equivalent to an eternal sonship. Hebrews chapter 1 proclaims the divine sonship of Christ, and this is the gold of the ephod. 
In Hebrews chapter 2 we learn that this same person, by inheritance so much above angels, was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He entered that rank in the scale of being which belongs to man, and being without sin was such a man that it was suitable for all wreaths of empire to meet on him. Thus into the background formed by the shining white of his spotless manhood, awoke the blue and the purple and the scarlet, as well as the gold. That part of Christ's present priestly service which is first considered in this epistle follows immediately on this truth of his person. It is evident that among the taunts made against the Hebrew Christians was the suggestion that if it were true that so exalted a person was their priest, then he was too high, too remote to sympathize with their weakness. This accounts for the negative form in which we are assured of his help. It is not true that our high priest cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Since he is both God and man, since he has reached in God's throne and in the suffering of death the extremes of power and of love, what miracles of sympathy, help, and comfort can be beyond our expectation from such a priest? What can be achieved by paraphrase in the realm of Bible translation is exemplified in this verse. The straightforward translation would be, sympathize with our weaknesses. With how perfect a tact is this translated in the authorized version. Touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Ridout here calls attention to the last words of Mr. Standfast as he was crossing the river of death in a great calm. Wherever I have seen the print of his shoe in the earth, there I have coveted to set my foot too. To follow his steps, is indeed the life set before us. But here is the succor needed to do it. The Son of God, passing through this world beforehand as his people's forerunner, has sought out before his entrance into the heavenly sanctuary the footsteps of trial where they would have to tread, weariness, loneliness, hunger. Treachery of foes and desertion by friends, lack of understanding and sympathy, apparent failure. There he has put his feet, in order that he may now be able to send help from the sanctuary exactly suited to their need. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy, and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. This foundation truth about his person is also needed for our understanding of the order or principle of succession of his priesthood. The Aaronic principle of succession was from father to son. On this principle Christ would not be a priest since he was not descended from Aaron. Nor would his priesthood be such as is needed by many sons on their way to glory. Another priest meets us long before Aaron on the page of scripture, Melchizedek, of whom we read in Genesis chapter 14. In a book where every man's genealogy, date of birth, and years of life are detailed exactly, the striking thing about Melchizedek is that he appears in the story without descent, without beginning and end of life, and therefore abiding a priest continually. Not until he came, who could really abide a priest continually, was there another priest after his order or succession. Only the Son of God, in resurrection, sitting at God's right hand can be the promised priest after the order of Melchizedek. The present priestly service of Christ as it concerns the true worship which is our main theme, is reached where we began this chapter, in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 22, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. 
and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. First, let us note the closing words of this quotation, in which we have the actual exhortation in the now familiar form. Let us draw near. Those to whom such an invitation can be addressed are described as persons whose hearts are sprinkled with blood and whose bodies are washed with water. This is obviously figurative language, and takes up the story of Exodus chapter 29, the ritual by which Aaron the high priest, and his sons, the priests, entered on their service. The writer of Hebrews will not name all the brethren priests, because he will not allow any other reference to impair the uniqueness and majesty of Christ's priesthood. But he is nevertheless designating all the brethren priests just as plainly as the language of Old Testament types can do so. By this, therefore, our way is pointed to our next chapter on the priesthood of all believers. We who in our day read these words are here invited to take up the priestly privilege of worship because we are priests. Nevertheless that supreme privilege is made to depend on our high priest over God's house, upon his perfect sacrifice, and upon his person and presence in the holiest. When, in the chapters leading up to the final goal we are now considering, Hebrews describes in detail the earthly sanctuary and the material sacrifices, the two purposes of this imposing system are given. It was intended to serve to the example and shadow of heavenly things, and equally to signify that the way into the holiest was not yet revealed. The holiest of all typifies the presence of God in heaven itself. Mark well the contrast intended in our verse, having boldness to enter into the holiest. Every material accompaniment of the idea of approach to God is obliterated at a stroke. All is spiritual. It is the very presence of God that the true worshippers enter, a sanctuary not made with hands. Then the dependence of our access upon the one finished sacrifice of Calvary is indicated in the words, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us. Through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 point the contrast with the sacrifices offered by the priests under the law. They offered many sacrifices, showing by the very repetition that they could never take away sins, and could never, therefore, open up the way into the holiest. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. They stood, he sat down, and here is the justification for the expression. The finished work of Christ. It is because the finished work of sacrifice is behind him that he sits down, and that we can enter there. Such are the truly great themes which occupy us, our great high priest, and the heavenly sanctuary which is now the place of his service, and because of his finished sacrifice. Our privilege of entrance into that most holy place. They are sufficient to engage every power of the renewed mind and heart. Now the God of peace, that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant bring you to maturity in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 to 21.